tonight it's about it's about hope and that is as as i've said not a not a um quality that is really embraced in buddhism it doesn't show up as a parami it doesn't show up as a brahma vihara it doesn't show up as a factor of enlightenment and many buddhist um buddhists and others too talk um about hope as a as a kind of little bit of a false place to try to rest ourselves that um you know well i well yeah i'll say more about that in a minute but but the but the buddha did of course talk about faith and here's a little little couple of sentences about faith in pali it is called sada and which is frequently translated as faith or conviction sada refers to one's aspiration and confidence in the path it is the intuitive sense that there's something worthwhile about being alive that inner freedom is available for each of us so i thought i think about this and i think faith is about faith in a process and hope tends to be faith in an outcome. Two very different things, like outcomes are nouns, processes are verbs, right? So um, that's one way maybe that some distinguish between faith and hope. Um, there's a very famous poem, I bet a lot of you have heard it by T.S. Eliot, and part of it goes like this. I said to my soul, be still and wait without hope. For hope would be hope for the wrong thing. Wait without love, for love would be love of the wrong thing. There is yet faith, but the faith and the love and the hope are all in the waiting. Wait without thought, for you are not ready for thought. It's kind of like having the ground pulled out from under you. It's like Pema Chodron saying, nope, you can't stand here. Nope, you can't stand here. Nope, none of this is stable. You just have to hang out in the not knowing because you're not ready for thought. <laughs> it's like, thanks a lot. <laughs> but actually, it's very Buddhist. It's very Buddhist. You know, we are in times of incredible uncertainty, aren't we? There's these multiple layers of global situations that, frankly, can feel really insurmountable. I mean, climate disruption alone is so vast we can hardly think about it. There's the chronic, you know, endemic corporate greed and all that the way the whole globe is tied together by these corporate interests that are just making billions and billions. There's re systemic racism throughout our country and many other countries. And then there's the few thousand years of patriarchy that we are, you know, trying as women to, to rise above and, and um, you know, um, not let it define us. That's a lot. That's a lot. And then we have a pandemic. My goodness. So little wonder that we might <laughs> not be feeling either hopeful or faithful some of the time, especially when we try to look at outcomes. How will this pandemic end? Who knows? Nobody knows. The CDC isn't saying, Dr. Fauci isn't saying, the World Health isn't saying. Nobody knows if or how it will end, you know? What will reverse? this human kind of running toward the edge of the cliff like lemmings around climate we have no we don't know we don't know that's a lot of live that's a lot of uncertainty to live with so it's hard to feel hopeful and it's hard to even feel like individual action is worth the effort because it's so hard to know if anything is really doing anything 
right? And there aren't any outcomes to measure it against. So I ran across a marvelous article this week, and I'm going to share a lot of it with you. It was part of this Ecosatva training that I've been doing, which is a Buddhist climate change, um, I, th I think it's like boot camp for how to, how to open your heart in the middle of all this. So this is an article by a teacher named Joan Halifax. Some of you may know of Joan Halifax. She's a Zen Buddhist teacher. She's an anthropologist, ecologist, a civil rights activist, a hospice caregiver, an author. And um, she has a center down in Santa Fe called the Upaya Center. So this is her article and it's called, oh, what the heck is it called? Just a minute, I gotta get the title. Ah. Uh, I can't find it right this minute. It's a great title and I can't find it, <laughs> but it's a really good title. It'll, co it'll come. Anyway, so I want to read you some of her article. Um, she says, uh, it, the title has wise hope in it. And she says, I want to begin by saying that the species of hope to be explored is something that I feel is very beautiful. This kind of hope, what I've come to call wise hope, is sourced in two great words here, surprise and imagination. Surprise and imagination. Wise hope means that we open ourselves to what we do not know, what we cannot know. That we open ourselves to not knowing and act, is my favorite, act from a place of astonishment. Act from a place of astonishment. Like instead of not knowing being paralyzing, what if it was liberating? Like we don't know what to do, we don't know what the outcome is going to be, so do do something do whatever and 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 whatever from the heart right if we look deeply she says we realize that anyone who is conventionally hopeful has an expectation that always hovers in the background and the shadow of an of a fear that one's wishes will not be fulfilled ordinary hope then is a form of suffering and this kind of hope is a partner with dread but I believe that wise hope appears through our courage to be in the field of radical uncertainty and in a space of groundless adaptivity to things as they are. And I'm going to give you a link to this article because you're going to want to read this again. This is a lot, a lot of good stuff. And I have to say that this whole thing about um, acting from radical uncertainty reminds me of this quote from a Buddhist teacher, and I couldn't find it, so I don't know who it is, but he was, he, I believe it was a he, was asked, um, what is enlightenment? What's your definition of enlightenment? And his answer was an appropriate response. An appropriate response. It sounds so simple, you know? Enlightenment is just an appropriate response? What does that mean? Can wild hope actually be not delusion and not wishful thinking, but actually an appropriate response to an endangered world that's upside down and topsy-turvy? We have um, vaccination mandates being compared to the Holocaust. We have um, just, you know, things, incomprehensible things. We're, we're down the rabbit hole. We're Alice in Wonderland in an upside-down world. And so wild hope may be the most appropriate response of all. Also, wise hope is not seeing things unrealistically, but rather seeing things as they are in terms in also in terms of impermanence, which means how can we know outcomes because everything's always changing? Um, hold on a minute. So 
I'm going to read. Hold on a minute. I've got to find my place here. I've got three, a couple of different um, pieces of paper. That's why. Oh, here we go. Okay, Vaclav Havel from Poland, the, the Polish um, democratically elected leader that was a labor labor man who was so popular. He said, "Hope is definitely not the same thing as optimism." It is not the conviction that something will turn out well, and this is my favorite part, but the certainty that something makes sense, regardless of how it turns out. This action makes sense on some higher level, regardless of the outcome. And so then Joan Halifax goes on to share this remarkable story, which is from the Holocaust. And I'm actually going to read you not her version of it, but the version she drew the story from, the original source, or close to original. Um, and this came from Susan Griffith, who is a feminist writer and ecologist in Berkeley here, quite renowned woman. And she heard it from her friend Odette, who is a writer and a Holocaust survivor. And Odette tells the story about Robert Desnos. Robert Desnos was in the camps in Czechoslovakia because he worked for the resistance. He was a resistance fighter from France. He was all a surrealist poet. He was part of the Dadaist movement. Now, don't ask me exactly what that is, but I know that anything Dadaist is really bizarre. <laughs> Pardon me, any artists who know tons more than I do, but it's it's just a, a art form that is very disruptive. It's very disruptive of ordinary ways of seeing things, and it just makes you kind of feel like your head has just been turned inside out. So here's the story. Even in the grimmest of circumstances, a shift in perspective can create startling change. I'm thinking of a story I heard, says Susan Griffith, uh, a few years ago from my friend Odette, a writer and a survivor of the Holocaust. Along with many others who crowded the bed of a large truck, she tells me, Robert Desnos is being taken away from the barracks of the concentration camp where he has been held prisoner. Leaving the barracks in the truck, the mood is somber. Everyone knows the truck is headed for the gas chambers. And when the truck arrives, no one can speak at all. Even the guards fall silent. But this silence is soon interrupted by an energetic man who jumps into the line and grabs one of the condemned man's hands. Improbable as it is, Odette explains, Desnos leaned over and reads the man's palm. And he says, oh, I see you have a very long lifeline and you're gonna have three children. He is very exuberant and his excitement is contagious. First one man and then another offers up his hand and the prediction is always for longevity, more children, abundant joy. As Desnos reads more palms, not only does the mood of the prisoners change, but that of the guards too. How can one explain it? Perhaps the element of surprise has planted a shadow of doubt in their minds? If they told themselves these deaths were inevitable, this no longer seems so inarguable. They are in any case so disoriented by this sudden change of mood among those they are about to kill that they're unable to go through with the executions. So all the men along with Desnos are packed back onto the truck and taken back to the barracks. Desnos has saved his own life and the lives of others by using his imagination. And I think by coming from a place of complete groundless, bizarre, pardon my language, what the fuck kind of energy, you know? So it's a wonderful story. It's a wonderful, wonderful story. 
um, act from a place of astonishment. And when life gets so bizarre and so illogical and so beyond reason, what a perfect time to be unreasonable and illogical and creative, right? So here we are in the midst of these overlapping crises. Um, what is an appropriate response right now? Well, one thing I know for sure, fear is not a helpful response. It is inevitable to feel fear, but it is not, does not help us reach an appropriate response because fear triggers the fight or flight mechanism. And so that means we either, I know I do this, we run toward urgency, I've got to do something. I'm going to get involved in this. I'm going to get involved in that. I'm going to do, you know, whatever. And it's just like we kick up a lot of energetic dust, but it doesn't really um, feel like we've gone in as deep and as true as we wish. And it never feels like enough, never feels like enough, whatever we do. So the alternative to fight is the flight, and that's the numbing, that's the turning away, not in not caring, but just like, I can't deal with this. I can't, I don't know what to do. I've got to get my kids dressed. I've got to get to my job. My mother is sick, you know, um, there's a pandemic going on. Don't ask me to think about the end of the planet as we know it, come on, you know, it's, it's too much. And that's what this eco-sattva training is so helpful with, is finding a way through those two extremes and offering teachings and practices that can really help us. And even without taking any training, you are here knowing that um, our practice, the core of our practice is softening and turning toward what is actually happening. And so that can mean in our meditation practice, turning toward that yucky, sick feeling of no matter what I do, the earth is still going down, you know. And even if I was the most virtuous person in the world, there are people who don't seem to care and keep on doing damage, you know, all of that. And who wants to feel that? How it just tightens it. Can, even as I say it, you're probably tightening, constricting. You know what that's like in the chest and in the belly. So we're not going to do this tonight. We have done this in other sessions and we'll probably do it again. But I just want to remind us that a way to begin to find that appropriate response, that creative, intuitive space in ourselves is to go through over and over a softening and a turning toward what we don't want to feel with great compassion and uh, a sense of faith, that sense of faith in the process. Like there's a reason I'm turning toward this, even though it feels horrible. I trust this practice. I have faith in this, right? So remember that appropriate action does not require certainty. And in fact, certainty actually narrows our choices. It's like that beginner's mind thing where the beginner, the, in the beginner's mind, there are infinite possibilities in the expert mind, very few, right? So it needs needing to have certainty about what the right path is. Should I be out in the streets or should I be doing uh, election work or should I be writing, signing petitions or should I be, you know, occupying the local energy plant? You know, it's crazy making, you know, we can't, there's no certainty. You don't know which of those, if any, are what we're going to do. So next week, I'm going to, I'm going to do part two next week. And it's a, it's another, I'm so excited about these two talks. This one is on uncertainty. And I'm going to be playing actually a talk by Joanna Macy, who gave the most wonderful talk about the gifts of uncertainty at a Bioneers conference.
So um, we'll, we'll really delve into uncertainty next time. There's about three or four stories of, um, that I know personally of other things, not quite as dramatic as the Robert Desno story, but other examples where something completely unpredictable out of the box, couldn't have seen it coming, has happened, has happened in our world. One of them was the way the Berlin Wall came down. And it's, you know, it's a really fascinating story because it was not just thousands of people all of a sudden storming this, this immovable object. It came out of a series of bureaucratic mistakes <laughs> at the border with command and control and some misinformation that went out to the public that led them to believe they were going to be able to cross into West, West Berlin. Um, and then a particular commander who, by the time this whole thing took off and, the, and thousands of people were crowded at the gates, he just didn't have the heart to turn them away. And it's just the most wonderful example. Nobody planned it. There was not a big underground movement ready, getting ready to tear down the Berlin, Berlin Wall. Nobody saw it coming. And then in a day, it was it was over and i remind myself of that when i feel like the, everything's impossible and there's nothing to be done it's like you don't know <laughs> what causes and conditions because everything happens out of causes and conditions doesn't it and those causes and conditions are always changing um and so what is stuck like glue today could be uprooted and disrupted tomorrow by a few changes in some causes and conditions right so so that's one world thing. There's a couple of more. I'm not going to talk about them tonight. What I actually want to talk about is the personal level, about our lives, our daily lives, where we may not become palm readers in the middle of a disaster, family fight, but, but where we, that creative, intuitive place of just going outside of the reasonable can, can make a profound difference. I have two personal stories from people I know. Oh, and by the way, I have another nice quote from a um, yoga teacher named Amy Stevens. And I like this. It was her definition of enlightenment. She says, enlightenment is an appropriate response to your inner callings and a willingness to act from your highest intuitive self. That's a nice combo. Your inner callings and then action from your highest intuitive self. That is an appropriate response. And I would add, come from your gut, from spontaneity, from risk, and from what sometimes sees, seems foolish, actually. Yeah. So two stories that I love very much. One is my friend Sally, whose mom was a pip. This woman was a communist, a book editor, a book agent. She was the, the book. She died just a couple of years ago. She was the book agent for Mumia. Oh, what's his long name? Who's been in prison forever? The, the black journalist in Philadelphia. Um, you may know who I mean. But anyway, she's she's his book agent. Amazing woman, real pithy woman. So the story is that she was walking down a dark street in Brooklyn where she lived and where Sally grew up. And she was walking down a fairly, you know, not well lit street. It was night. She heard footsteps coming behind her. Did not feel good. We as women know exactly what that feels like. You hear these steps coming behind you. And do I turn around? Or do I ignore it? Do I, you know, whatever. And so she glanced around and there was a rather large man coming up fairly close behind her. So she was scared, but something deeper, her gut took over. And she turned around and said, oh, 
I'm so glad you're here. I, I need help. Could, could you escort me into that bar up there? I feel like someone's been following me and I'm really very nervous. And the man sort of was, you know, said, of course, madam, you know, and gave her his arm and he escorted her into the bar. And she thanked him profusely, and they parted ways. Now, whether he was out to hurt her or not, I guess she'll never know. But she took the chance to look it in the face. It's like that great story by the, the Buddhist, uh, Buddhist teacher about, um, it was about fear. It might have even been the Dalai Lama, I can't remember. But there was this dog that was chained at the gate of a temple that he had to go in every day as a child. This was a young child. And every day that dog, big dog, like bear only mean, um, with dripping fangs and snarls would snarl and yap and, you know, tug at his chain and wanted to attack. And this, this young child would, would turn away and, you know, slink away. And then one day, you know, he was so frozen with fear, but instead of turning away, he ran toward the dog. He ran right toward the dog and the dogs, you know, cowered and went and, and lay down. I mean, it's this sort of gut instinct that's like, that's crazy, but there you go. So that's Sally's story. Then my friend Robin Fiorelli, a long time ago, she was walking at night. These are real women's stories, I guess. She was walking at night and a, a young man did come up and did accost her with a gun and said, give me your wallet. And she, of course, you know, went into her purse and got her wallet. Anyone would. But what happened was that she looked at him with a face full of compassion and sorrow, like, like, I am so sorry that it's come to this. You know, she didn't say anything, but she just looked at him in a way that had no fear in it, apparently. So, so she says, and he just kind of, his head kind of went down and he said, oh, forget it. You know, and he just walked away, you know. So somehow that disarmingness of vulnerability, we've talked about that in other talks about the, the power of vulnerability. So these are just little moments, you know, that, that, um, that happen in life. And you probably have some memories of this kind of thing, either you personally or people you know, family family stories you might have a story of a grandma who or just have experienced a grandma who just had this way of pulling out some twist in the middle of a, a stuck situation or or like you're in the middle of a family situation and everybody's role is 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 assigned this is the family culture this is how we always do it we never talk about this and such or we never argue or we don't you know what i mean there's like family culture of what we do and don't do and you know, when we say to kids things like, now, honey, that's not appropriate. We're meaning appropriate in relation to social norms, aren't we? But the appropriateness of the appropriate response of enlightenment is exactly the opposite. It's like beyond social norms. So there's things that happen in families, in, at work, in our, just in our lives, where we find ourselves miraculously accessing something we didn't quite know was there. Um, maybe we're just exhausted and, and our guard is down, you know. But I wanted to just take a minute to invite you to, um, to take a minute to reflect on this. And if you like to, you know, close your eyes or cast your eyes down and go into a more inward place. And just think about anything that the story, the stories I've told tonight 
might have brought up for you about, oh, that reminds me of this or that, that you've heard about, that you've seen, that you've experienced or that you've done. So just take a minute on that. And of course, the Robert Desnos story is very dramatic, and we're not looking for that level of drama. These can be small, intimate things. Did any, raise your hand if something came to you. Just curious. Nancy has one. Anyone else? Okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I yeah. Think maybe it'll come, maybe something will come to you. You know, sometimes when uh, an idea is put into the thought field, you either get a memory or you see something in the world that you hadn't noticed before, like, oh, that's kind of like what Betsy was talking about or what Joan Halifax was talking about. Yeah. I do think that whether or not it feels like a moment where you really stepped outside the box or um, did something that was radically different than what you usually do, that, that one of the fruits of practice is releasing old behaviors that don't serve and we talked about this last time about letting go and i invited everybody to make a list of all the things the, the letting go i let go of this i let go of this i let go of this and um the idea of shedding the conditioned responses the habitual responses and not inventing something new but just what what is new will naturally arise out of the space that that conditioning was filling up that it now isn't filling and our natural instincts which can be a wild variety of natural instincts. We might become funnier, you know? We might become people who are a little more pithy, a little more outspoken. You know, wise speech doesn't mean nice speech. <laughs> that nice speech is not one of the paramis or one of the one of the eightfold path, believe me. And um nice as I what did I read this just the other day? Nice is not the same as kind. Yeah, you know, kind can be very direct. It's kind to be direct with someone and tell them the truth. It may not feel good, but it's kinder than shining them on and pretending, and then you disappear because really you wanted to break up with them and they don't know where you went, right? So just, I think the way the practice frees up a broader range of expression, a broader range of the human experience, right? More love, but more anger, perhaps, right? you know, accessing what's really there. And then the skill comes in rather than suppressing that, which is ugly and uncomfortable, to find those skillful means, right? To to let it be there without, you know, what does Resma Monikam say about smearing it all over each other, you know? So I think at this point, I'm going to just, oh, I'm going to just give you one more quote and then we'll do a song and then see what, what sharing comes up. This is a very favorite quote. You've probably heard it. Um, oh, I want, and I want to say one more time a quote again. This is, um, oh, no, I guess this is me. I thought it was Joan, but it's me. Wild hope affirms our gut, our deeply felt sense of possibility in life, a deep revulsion at the feeling of marching lockstep down a doomed path. It's a deep revulsion against the trance of this is how it is, it is unchangeable. Or this is how I am, I'm unchangeable. Wild hope is that eternal fountain of possibility that emptiness offers. You know, that if everything's uncertain and nothing is permanent, anything is possible, right? 
And that is a, a hope I can live with. That is a hope that allows me to get up in the morning and not be in a state of complete despair, you know. And it helps me to not drive myself to be a 24-7 activist, which is what I have a tendency to do, you know, but to really allow that, well, well the song, my song says it, we'll never know if it's enough. So we have to just live in a way that has integrity, doesn't, don't we? So I'm going to sing a song that I know many of you know, because you've heard me do it before. I wish I could get my microphone to work, but I can't. And um, it's just really, again, lifts up this idea that all we can be is a light, a lamp unto ourselves and a lamp unto others. And we don't, that's all we got, you know. No better time to love. Shine a light across the darkness Like the moon across the waves In this midnight of our journey Show the world a shining face Even earth sky can tumble, the ocean deep, the stars above, all that we know is bound to crumble, there is no better time to love. never tell the story we have to learn it on our own reach for a truth you can believe in the time is urgent take it slow even faith and hope lie broken when all we do is not enough We face the dark with eyes wide open There is no better time to love The news will never tell the story known it all along and in the darkness we remember and note by note we find the song so shine a light across the darkness we'll never know if Holding hands with eyes wide open There is no better time to love I'd love to have you sing No Better Time to Love with me. There is no better time to love. It's sort of like praying together when you hear other voices saying something. <laughs> 
that could be very powerful and could be true and could really guide us forward to hear other voices. And now you can't hear each other, but you can see each other's faces and you can see your lips moving. And you'll feel it in your own body. There's something about singing something that we believe that is even more powerful than saying it. There's something about the breath and the vibration and the musicality of it that just seal it in there. So a few more times, there is no better time to love. 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 Give me your hand with eyes wide open. Sing it with me. There is no better time to love. Thank you. Well, we have some time for your questions, your thoughts, your reflections, your insights, or just how you're doing. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.